Broadcasting from an ancient forerunner relic, vaguely shaped like a giant hula hoop, it's the RF Generation Nation podcast, Wild Nine. I'm your host, Jess. You can find me in the forums as Slacker. And this is Adam. You know me as BigMan2K. And also, we have a very special guest this time around, my very lovely Mrs. Slacker, Amy. Hello, good evening. You know, this is a podcast. I might be listening to it at, like, four in the morning. We're looking at you, crap master. <laughs> and uh, this lineup today, we... Today, listen to me. Now I'm doing it. Thanks a lot. We have What's New on Channel 3, a couple of uh, gaming news stories. And we've also got your 24-hour topic suggestions that we're going to go ahead and look through and answer. And, of course, we're going to close out with our standard top five. New on the front page of RFGeneration.com, Noise Redux analyzes the Zelda Game Boy lineage, starting from the original classic NES series Legend of Zelda all the way down to the Minish Cap. I cover a little blurb about the metagame of video gaming, including game theory and game study. And I'm going to take one for the team here if I am mispronouncing this, but D.S. Heinem has given us Anchor Shot, Dreamcast Triggerheart Excelica, an excellent late release that uh, I myself am actually still trying to track down. Noise Redux covers Gunpei for the PSP. And as always, you can catch all these articles and more at rfgeneration.com. So... What's new in the gaming world? We've got an interesting story coming out of the Microsoft camp. Hackers have figured out the Microsoft point card algorithm and were able to steal $1.2 million worth of Microsoft points. 160 points at a time. That's like a whole wardrobe for an avatar. Awesome. Or, interestingly enough, it's two Call of Duty map packs. Ooh. I bet... It all started when they learned where to put the, the little dots on the Mega Man 3 password screen to get, like, the extra energy tank and such. <laughs> That's where it starts. Yeah, apparently they uh, they analyzed the coding structure of uh, the input strings, so they, they cracked that, the algorithm and knew how to generate new codes. Uh, and they got away with, with, like, 160 points apiece, and they just kept on regenerating it over and over and over and over. And the latest word is that Microsoft has actually caught them and has cleared out the credit and is trying to find out what exactly they can do to prosecute. Which everybody, I think, I mean, I'm sure everybody's kind of wondered if that would ever happen to be able to just essentially, well, not now, but to essentially have free points with, you know, some sort of a coding structure. I mean, there's always been, you know, some way of either a, a key gen or something to crack Microsoft for either software or you know, anything like that, mostly, you know, Windows Office kind of thing, but to be able to pull the same thing on an actual redeemable code for what's essentially the same as cash, that's it, it's quite a feat to even pull that off, I think. This is a bigger deal, actually, than, say, somebody wrecking the economy in, say, World of Warcraft or even uh, back Ultima Online, uh, <laughs> most notoriously lately in uh, EVE Online. It, it's... Uh, it's different than a self-contained economy because this is, you know, this is direct money for online virtual goods, and I mean, you do get that with like gold farming and that. But there, there is uh, this is a real economy based off a of virtual economy, and when you start tampering with that structure, it's there's literally billions of dollars now wrapped up into online currency and when you get somebody that starts doing that i'm not saying it's the same thing as just going out to the mint and printing money but i think it's a bigger deal than what we tend to make it out to be because to most gamers this is kind of considered funny money it's kind of like we, we think of it like monopoly money sure you, you pay real cash for a card or even your credit card online uh but since it's virtual it almost has you know that more of a ethereal feel like this isn't something substantive but as anyone who's played Ultima Online or, or World of Warcraft can tell you, uh, you know, people spend it's it's a billion dollar industry now, uh, and you're you're literally hacking with an economy that not just uh, changes the structure of the economy of the game you're, you're playing, or in this case of the the marketplace, but you are uh, you're tampering with literal real money that could be spent. Uh, now, granted, these codes were were randomly generated, so it's not like Microsoft necessarily lost money when these were created as as towards product that they could sell but 
say that this algorithm continuously gets broken, you know, it, it even has the potential to inflate costs. As bizarre and, and nonsensical as that might immediately sound, when you have a, a an unsecure, this is in any economy, when you have an unsecure protocol against forgery, you know, it just skyrockets the price of, of said currency. So, you know, now that I'm not trying to say that because of this Microsoft, you know, suddenly your map packs are going to cost $2 million instead of $1 million, but <laughs> uh, it's just that it's going to cost more because now Microsoft has to take even further security measures to, to secure their algorithms. They have to kind of sometimes go back, you know, if this becomes a perpetual problem, they, it costs them time and money to go back and reorganize the system. And it's something we're going to see more and more of. I mean, our generation's grown up with credit cards, so it's hard for us to realize that back then people there were credit crises because people didn't think of credit cards like real money. They thought of it as this imaginary money that they'd get to have to pay back at some point in time. And as we're moving into this brave digital frontier where people are even talking about getting rid of real money and having everything go digital, uh, you know, we're just going to be caught in this mind frame of, is this actually representative of real cash? The other thing that concerns me is the social commentary that if Microsoft really does decide to bring this to court, um, how seriously are the court officials, the judges, the lawyers, the attorneys going to take this? Are they going to just view this as funny, funny money and thereby not a big deal? Or are they going to seriously understand it for the fraudulent types of problems that it is? And I think that's going to go a long way in showing the public that we as as a gaming population still take our hobby very seriously and um, that an infraction even in this part of society, the gaming society, is just as equal and serious of an infraction as everywhere else in society. So it has ongoing societal implications as well, depending on how far Microsoft decides to take it. And I think to kind of go along with that, if you look at the, the way that Sony has been you know, rolling with their uh, prosecution of the, the, you know, actually hacking the console. I mean, this is, you know, it goes a couple different ways. I mean, they're, they're all they did to figure this out was just they had a used code, and then they were able to add something to it, whether it's, you know, some extra number or, you know, however they added whatever they added to it to actually make it a valid code again. This is actually producing, you know, would technically be theft, but... Uh, the the 160 points. I mean, those are, if I remember, right, those are pretty much like the promotional values when they're giving out right. free it's, points. It's like two bucks. I, yeah, because it's like 80 points right now. Microsoft money to to real money, <laughs> to, right. to the American dollar. Right, but I mean, <laughs> how much is that to the yen? <laughs> Three thousand pesos. <laughs> oh, it's. I mean, this is essentially real money in that you. I mean, there's no other way to get them aside from. Promotional stuff, and they and they weren't just getting points; they were also getting 48-hour free live trials, and I mean, even some people were getting Halo Reach Banshee Avatar stuff. I mean, so I mean, obviously they're trying to get the points, but they've you know Microsoft's now blocked any new codes that were produced with it, but they've already you know the damage has been done. I think that you know I think they will try and prosecute it. it I mean, like I said, it is essentially theft if you look at it that way. And mm-hmm. the Sony, you know, they're president of you know, suing hackers for what they're doing for these consoles, I think it's that will kind of help Microsoft's case, I would think. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see. You know, they, these are, we don't think about it as much right now, but these are precedent-setting legal cases. Uh, years down the road, when there's, you know, literally theft of millions of dollars in one direction or another, depending on you know, how the virtual space is, is laid out, they're going to look back to these court cases and use these to determine how the future is set. I mean, this is how we ended up with digital rights media and stuff. So it, it goes a long way oftentimes to, to saying what our, our future, uh, you know, digital landscape is going to look like, especially economically. Mm-hmm. Speaking of big money, big prizes, Mr. Wade McGilberry, uh, the humble winner of the MLB 2K10 uh, perfect game, uh, perfect pitching game, of last year uh, had a, a really nice article in, in Kutaku that showed how down-to-earth and humble this guy is, and I, I just had to bring that up because it, it was notable to me uh, and, and worth mentioning because in interviews, which there's only been a few with the guy since he's won, he just seems like the the level-headed, 
responsible guy. You never hear winning big money. And I just really had to, to give the guy, uh, you know, my own thumbs up for uh, not going to town, going crazy. And, and uh, you know, he said he wanted a Harley and he didn't even buy that. He, his wife let him get a dog, <laughs> <laughs> which at first seems... See, you know, everybody wants to be the first person to, to blame uh, Mrs. McGillery, but you know, <laughs> apparently they're about to start a family, and I, you know, I guess you know, motorcycles can be awesomely cool. But uh, <laughs> it's you know, they they paid off their house, they paid off their bills, and mm-hmm. they're saving the rest. And, and I guess it goes a long way since they're both accountants, so <laughs> it kind of <laughs> shows where their their mentality was. But you know, I just had to bring that up because. Oh, I don't. I don't know the statistics, but the overwhelming majority of people who win a million dollars or more end up bankrupt in like the first five years or something. Yeah. I said I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I know it's a crazy amount. And uh, apparently, the only uh, the only person that came out of the woodwork uh, asking for money was a long lost relative uh, who was asking for uh, him to get into pineapple farming. <laughs> pineapple surprise. Which, which. Uh, I've never tried, but I heard was pretty difficult. So you know, I guess kudos <laughs> to him to say, and eh, no thanks. We'll uh, we'll put that right next to the ostrich farm. Speaking of the awesomeness that was Wade McGillberry, one of the things that's interesting about today is today is the National Day of Awesome. Today is also the National Day of Mario, and that brings us to one of our popcorn podcast uh, comments from the Ichiban. He was wondering about how Super Mario Brothers 3 is clearly the consensus for the best Nintendo Entertainment System game ever. Um, he was thinking that po- because of the components of not being able to save and because there wasn't a password, um, that there was some shortcomings with that game and one had to do it all in one shot. And um, he was wanting uh, the podcast personnel to look back and look at some games that are considered the best ever and uh, judge them by today's standards. And um, looking back at Mario, Mario also encouraged different types of play, speedruns, different worlds and warp zones, as well as as just shooting through it. And um, so I thought I wanted to throw that out and get you gentlemen talking about that. The ability to speedrun or to attack the game kind of in different angles, the way that the warp zones were presented in, in that one, because it was such a huge game and there were different ways to, to get through it. Uh, uh, that was something that has strangely added longevity to it because it doesn't have a save feature, because I think if it did have a battery backup people would have been a lot more inclined just to start from the very beginning and go all the way through it every time and uh, you know just save it when they were, you know, at whatever point in the game. But because it did not have any save feature or password or anything, uh, it, it actually seems in a way to encourage, you know, for you to try it a little bit differently every time you go through it. You know, there's it's such a big game that we're still playing it all these years later. People still go back and play the Nintendo one, um, from my experience, more so than the... Uh, the emulated ones, like in the the Super Nintendo compilation uh, that they had, and uh, Mario All Stars, and e- even for uh, you know emulating on on PCs, a lot of people go back to the old Nintendo one, despite not having those extra features for saving. And I think that actually, in some ways, is is a good thing for that particular game. Like I said, it I think that helped make people want to speed run it. Uh, people who I've known lots of people take totally different routes to get all the way through that game. And for a lot of other games uh, since then that have had such fast worlds but had savings, it just seems to encourage more of a linear progression. But that's kind of my rambling thought on it. Yeah, I know that whenever I play it, I always have to make a stop in uh, World 4, the uh, Giant Land. Yeah. Yeah. That is the coolest world in the entire game. And that's kind of the, uh, the other fun part about it is that you can have a preferred set of levels that you want to play through. You can do that with either using a warp whistle or just trying to plow through one area so you can get through to another one. It's kind of, I mean, it really is without a save feature. I mean, because it, it never, I mean, the Mario series never really had a save feature until we got to the Super well, Mario really World. The Super, yeah, the Super Mario World, obviously. But, you know, it was a much larger game with multiple exits and, um, you know, just these, it's a gigantic world. And I'm not sure how many, I can't remember exactly how many levels are in Mario 3, but... It wasn't necessarily a completely linear progression through the game. You had multiple 
branching paths and you know again the warp whistles and everything else too. We, you, you really you had some shortcuts in Mario World, but you always kind of had this you know the set of worlds that you had to go through every time because you'd get stuck in tubular every time if you had to go through those star worlds. Oh my. Ugh. I, I I finished every world in that game except for what was past tubular and the star worlds several times over before I finally got that. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I I don't know how many times I got stuck in the uh, special levels. But I think what uh Ichiban was getting to a little bit later in in his uh in his comments was that uh if we if we go back and look at some of these games like Mario Three that are considered like you know just the best ever you know we're we're so nostalgic for some of these old games and uh, if we look at them by you know, today's standards there's you know granted there's a ton of retro games that are just almost unplayable to go back and and try and and goof around on you know it, it's well, one thing that a collector definitely notes is that once they've come out with a, a remake or a reboot that features a lot of the same content of the first game, it can be pretty hard to go back a lot of times if they refine the play control, if they fix some of the glitches, you know, if they if they fix the pacing. Um, so the thing that I look for in a retro game that makes me time and time again go back to it, you know, it's rarely going to be graphics. Uh, it's rarely going to be uh, innovative features that start becoming the norm. For me, it's the fluidity of play. It's the responsiveness for the controls. It's something that uh, the the actions you're doing to control the game just feel so natural. And it's not just because you put a ridiculous amount of hours into this as a kid, but it's like you can still go back to it and, and know that this is just smooth. And you can even go all the way back to Atari for that, like Spider Fighter, uh, Sequest. Just they, you know, you get a, a good controller that's not. <laughs> <laughs> not worn and, and broken, then you, you can get a, a just a smooth feel on some of these, and that to me is what uh, what really makes the it worthwhile to go back and still play some of these older games. There's also the little cues for nostalgia, but even beyond that, there's still music on some of these old classic games I have that just bring me back. I uh, I remember I I bought the CD soundtrack to Final Fantasy III on Super Nintendo, which of course we now know as Final Fantasy VI. And I bought the CD soundtrack; it was like a three-disc set from the Square store at the time. Loaned it to a buddy of mine in college, and a, like half a year later, he finally gave it back to me. And I listened to it on the way home from college. I hadn't played this game, hadn't even listened to the music in a long time, like years. I got misty-eyed on the way home listening to that music to that game. And it's just crazy. It just had that that uh, nostalgic sway. But uh, there's uh, even beyond just you know the, the the simplistic tools that we had for music back then. There's still some awesome melodies and remixes and stuff that you hear nowadays. I mean, video game concerts are a big thing now, mm-hmm. and they're redoing some of this music that we grew up with as kids. That you know you start to realize this was pretty decently composed music in some cases. I, I really enjoy listening to video game music. I mean, that's as as much as I try and throw into these podcasts and stuff. It's a huge part of the gameplay experience anyway, but to go back to some of these games, whether they're impossible to beat or if they're, you know, just something you're going to pick up and play, there's a lot of, you know, that's a big part of gaming. And then Final Fantasy VI slash 3 has an excellent soundtrack. Um and you know, you mentioned Atari. I never really, I didn't grow up with Atari. Um, I grew up with the NES. And but even then, you know, you look at, you know, even I don't know if it's a lost nostalgia or if it's just the fun of of one-on-one gameplay of just driving a tank in combat and shooting each other. It's I don't know. I, 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 I still I, think uh, I still think two-player combat is just one of the purest <laughs> versus games that it's ever been made. It's it's still fun to go back and tinker with that one. And then you look, you know, you look at Pitfall with its it's it's you know for an Atari game, I think it controls pretty well. I mean, but you know, I I I go back to the NES games, and there's a lot of you know good arcade ports and everything, but there's Metroid where you can make the kind of precise jumps that you need to make um, with the music, the lack of music and just the overall maze structure of the whole thing. There's, there's, I mean, there's just so many good games out there that, it, I mean, I, Mario three, I think is, you know, by the end of the NES life period, it, it's getting the control scheme 
you know, the overall control playability down. And I think that's one of the biggest parts of why it's still such a huge draw to play again. I'm glad you brought up Metroid because I think that's a perfect example of what we're getting at with looking at a, a retro game by today's standards. Uh, Super Metroid is oftentimes labeled as one of the best games ever made, if not the best game ever made. But uh, one thing that I th- I kind of didn't like in their transition from regular Metroid, the original, into Super Metroid was that Super Metroid gave you a minimap. Now, I was all excited about that mm-hmm. when it was announced because anyone who's tried to get through the original Metroid without any hints or walkthroughs, especially <laughs> when it first came out, oh my goodness, you were spending dozens of hours just trying to trying to find anything in that game. And, you know, when I first heard about the minimap coming up for, Super, for the Super Metroid, I was all excited. It's like, oh, finally, you know, I can, I can just kind of sit down and really study this and go through it. Mm-hmm. But I really believe a little bit was lost in the translation. There was a, a, an isolation and a loneliness, a, a, a kind of a, a, a just a, a unique feeling you got in the first Metroid, especially if you played it when it first came out, that you were all alone in this uncharted territory, this vast expanse that you had to, to use your own tool sets, be it a piece of paper and pencil, graph paper, whatever, mm-hmm. and it brought a lot to the atmosphere of the game. Now, Super, the Super Metroid was, is easily one of the most atmospheric games I've ever played, but I think that Metroid had a little bit of a one-up on it in some, in some capacity because there was a mystery to it without that auto-mapping feature. Uh, you know, it's, an, it's annoying to go back now. It's hard to go back and play something like that, mm-hmm. but I think that we've, we haven't found a good way to communicate that uh, that sense of mystery and still be as approachable still have you know the the not frustrating tools there's still people that go back and play the old wizardry games and such that you know you had to figure out and and they and they you know thrive off that they enjoy it but and truth be told i'm not really one of them i i like ease of use but i i have to say there's there's a difference there and it's something that i think was lost and i don't have a good suggestion of how to catch it back but uh there's a difference yeah, I think if they tried to go back to something like Metroid with zero map for an adventure type of game, I just don't see it's going to sell because people are expecting that at this point. I, I like the mini-map portion of it, but I think if they would have left out the, the map stations where you can just download the whole map for the entire uh, area the that region, you're in, yeah. I think it would have given you the sense of exploration because, you. I mean, I could see... Um, you know that being maybe por- a part of how I don't know if it's the suit or the ship or its communication between the two of how you know to actually map up map out your terrain, whereas you know where, where you're just able to find the, all these locations where they have the entire map of the whole thing. You know I, I see that as being just an aid to the gamer instead of you know leaving that sense of exploration out there. I don't really even think we should go back to an era without those kind of features. It's just that. Uh... It's also looking back to a different era of gaming. This was sure. when you had Nintendo Power as like your guide to knowing anything that was coming out, as well as any hints or, or tricks. You, know, you didn't have game facts. You didn't have the internet to find all this stuff. And so, you know, as gamers, we were kind of on our own a lot of times. And you you got these little groups of kids that got together to try to figure a game out. And that's just something we're not really likely going to be able to regain. So it you know it speaks to a different era too. I don't really think we can go back. Can't can't go back home again. You know, you, you got to push forward and try something new. But I have yet to find something that can still capture that isolationism and loneliness that that Metroid brought. Isred101 likes to hear our thoughts on the future Smithsonian game art exhibit. I'm excited about anything that capitalizes on interactive media and shows it as something worth displaying, because we're still like uh, you know like comic books and its heyday. You know, before its heyday, movies before its heyday. Uh, we're we're still trying to show that we're a worthwhile worthwhile media that we you know this is something that people can appreciate on lots of different levels. It's worth preserving. It's worth exploring. It's worth sharing together. And so anything to bring that further to the limelight, I'm generally a fan of. And it's inspirational in a way that the Smithsonian is is actually going to be hosting something like this because you you don't get much you know, much bigger than that. Uh, and uh, Israel made a, a good point that it's it's really only been uh, within the last decade that gaming has has just become this pop 
culture kind of assumed to be fad kind of thing into an actual respected, uh, recognized art form where you have big name uh, talent like you know everyone from Steven Spielberg to uh, Guido de Toro um, jumping into our field, so to speak, and saying, you know what, I'd really like to make uh, a, a product out of this and. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it's just from the commercial standpoint as much as it is exploring new territory that mm-hmm. uh, the you know the professionals of one genre is looking into for another. One of the things that's really nice um, with Jesse's line of work is he's able to uh, pick up a lot of the collector's editions on the strategy guides and um, things of that nature. And they always have such beautiful artwork in them, just flipping through the books and seeing like the artist renditions of uh, the characters of the games, um, maybe some thoughts, some um, development of the characters and how, they, how the uh, designers of the games came to uh, decide upon the characters in their form in the games, that type of thought process, almost, almost that storyboarding technique is always very fascinating to me. It would be interesting to see if um, the Smithsonian has some of those before and after types of exhibits. I think the other thing that, I mean, that it's also spawned is that not only the, you know, the awesome artwork in the strategy guides that the art, you know, that the developer may put as an art book, but some of the independent art that people are creating for these different games, whether it's, you know, whether it's an old game or a new game or whatever it is, there are some amazing artists that are inspired by video games, even. Mm-hmm. And they have 40 years worth of a game library to pick and choose from or cross over into. I mean, you you know, you can look at the big pieces of art all the way down to sprite and webcomics. And it's all just something inspired by, you know, our our hobby. Essentially, yeah. More and more of tomorrow's big name, worthwhile artists are going to have grown up on video games, and that's going to be, you know, a large part of their influence. We're, we're getting a lot of the kind of amateur kinks out of the way um, over the last decade because we've seen, you know, some terrible video game movie properties and uh, some games that try to be art and end up being over pretentious because they're trying to be self-important. Um, then you have, you know, kind of like the quiet giants like Shadow of the Colossus that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they become almost cult hits because you have this large following saying, see, this is art. But, you know, the the larger, uh, larger scale community doesn't necessarily respond to it as much. And, uh, you know, it's the, the gentle giants, so to speak, like that, that are, I think, going to be continuing to, to push forward on respectability for gaming uh, and the combination of gaming and art. Speaking of uh, <laughs> collectible items, uh, this actually should have gone back into our news category. GameStop, as of uh, less than a month now, I think, are no longer carrying, or I'm sorry, they're no longer going to be trading in Game Boy Advance games or systems. They are uh, shutting down the used market for that line, and you know they'll still have the games and and uh, accessories and systems until they all sell out, but. They actually have a, a press release saying that the system is now officially a collector's item because they're not carrying it anymore, which <laughs> just shows how you know GameStop tends to think of such things. Uh, I guess it's a little bit of a sly marketing campaign on their part, but I'm not going to say it's not time, especially with the new 3DS um, right around the corner, but it is always notable when this happens especially with GameStop being as large of a chain as it is, when, when they say, all right, we're no longer carrying this, that really is the death knell for the popularity and accessibility <laughs> yes. of that system. Uh, I remember when Xbox got shut down, and it, and most people agree it seemed really quick. I mean, you know, like, mm-hmm. out of nowhere. You know, we, we got so used to a minimum five-year life cycle for a system to be available. And after the fourth year, just a total shutdown and a, and a forced transition into 360. Yeah, I run my 360. I was going to say, I of was, course, that, that was really brought on by the 360. The 360 came on, and it took off, and Xbox was out. Yep. And I think, that's, I, I think that's partially on Microsoft, too, because they, I think that they stopped supporting it immediately when mm-hmm. they went to the 360, whereas Sony, even for some time, still supporting 
the oh, PS2. They're still, and, yeah, they're still, still to some capacity supporting the PS2. I mean, it's right. just been the last year that they've stopped manufacturing. So, yeah, it, it's surprising that it, it shows a bit of a different mentality, kind of the, the cutthroat nature of Microsoft versus, versus Sony. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably also a reason why you have such fervent uh, Sony fanboys in some capacity. It, it, you know, it's it's you have this, the Sony fanboys that feel like there's a loyalty issue. Then you've got the Microsoft fanboys that are like, you know, hey, they're they're progressing the tech, you know, with X, especially on the online forum with Xbox Live and and such. So it's, but I, I can't get too much. Don't have enough time to really get too much into the uh, the, the gaming, the game theory and and game studies that uh, uh, Shadow. Kusaragi wanted me to to mention, but I, that's definitely a piece related to that is uh, tracking down the the different philosophical mindsets of individuals who are both collectors and just your your average game players. You know how their loyalties are approached by these companies, these gigantor conglomerates that could care less about uh, if you. <laughs> You know, they they want the money, you know, and of course that's brought up by brand recognition and and loyalty to brand uh, and other factors like that. But in the in the end, you know, they're just trying to get the buck, and uh, it's it's fascinating to me to see people so loyal to corporations uh, through one reason or another like that. But that's <laughs> we'll have to do a story on that sometime. Yeah, I think that that I mean, just a quick note on that. I mean, I think part of that is you look at some of the bigger corporations that are, you know, they're real loyal to, but. You look at some of the smaller, whether it's a, a developer or even a, you know a company like Valve, um, that people are extremely loyal to just because of their their you know they have incredible sales on all their stuff via the Steam platform, but they also have great product. They're pulling in other developers to put out products on their stuff, and it seems like they are actually accessible for people to actually contact them. I mean, I've I've had just randomly I tweeted uh, Gabe Newell after something he said, and he responded right back on on Twitter, which is you know I based on everything I've seen with him actually doing emails and stuff like that, and the kind of stuff that he puts out there, I have no you know real doubt that it was actually him, but you know it could have been something someone doing their social networking stuff, but he seems like the kind of guy that would be if he's on there, he might you know actually respond to you. Yeah. Yeah, he, he he's one of those uh, one of those gaming personas that a lot of people get behind and appreciate. And it doesn't mean that everything he says people are going to agree with, but you know, he has his following because people have have seen his work in the industry and they follow behind that. It, and that goes into uh, the the games as art kind of thing. You you'll find a a developer or you'll find uh you even have uh, like Amy Henning and, and some of these uh, people who do the game stories that you you keep track of. Everybody has kept tra- uh, everybody who's a fan of music have kept track of uh, certain musicians in gaming like Yuzo Koshiro. You know that you uh, just like these other popularized media uh, outlets, you, you find the people that you want to keep track of and then see where they jump from one thing to the next. And it's getting more and more predominant that you can keep track of these personalities. You know, they're out there. It's, it's, we've moved past the days where you'd get the goofy translated names on NES games. And sometimes like, like Mr. Fun or, or, uh, you know, now they actually have their names out there and, uh, Oh yeah. You beat some of these old Nintendo games and you look at the credits and you're like, that's not your name. It's, and it, you're giving them credit now, though, you know, and and even more so, we're going back and trying to trace the the studios who actually developed some of these games that never got credit for it, and and that to me is a real sign that we're moving into the art territory because we're trying to track down these people and appreciate uh, their work. You know, we find someone we like and we want to know all the stuff that they were involved with, and mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's one of my favorite parts about how gaming has become. Uh, it has has grown into a big enough field to where you can you can track artists like that. Talking about the ever prevalent debate between different corporations, Sony versus Microsoft, Duke Togo puts out a very good post. Um, he was looking for a little commentary about save games on the cloud um, with the play, uh, PlayStation members having it and wondering if Microsoft would follow suit and seeing if that would be the standard in the next gen. I'm kind of surprised that Microsoft didn't come out with this first. Yeah, I mean, truth be told, yeah. Uh, to to offer everything else out there on live, this should have been there from the start. 
Well, you see cloud I mean, now, now that it's, all the time on TV for you know Windows Seven and such. It's in the cloud. Yeah, I hate those commercials. Um, as yeah. a as a tech nerd, I hate those commercials so much. It's really surprising that Sony is beating them to the punch. Um, as much as they talk about things, you know, being everything wanting to be digital distribution, and they're putting out full games and everything else, why not? I mean, Steam already has it. Also, to you know, to to bring up Valve once more, um, Steam already has it too. With I don't know if it's all games, but I know certain games have online saves, and it, it's now. I mean, obviously, for for us to say that. Six years ago, when the 360 came out, would be kind of it might be kind of a stretch. But now that everything's kind of uh, in the cloud, um, <laughs> right above the information superhighway, <laughs> in the tubes, I am very tempted to get PlayStation Plus now because of it. Really, I really am. I mean, the 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 free games are cool, and the you know. Uh, was it Tiger handheld that 1989? He was talking to me on Facebook about it. He said that he he goes uh, stupid PlayStation Plus. I said, "What's going on?" He goes, "The Mortal Kombat demo is for PlayStation Plus members only." Mm-hmm. I said, "That yeah, I mean that you know the demos are cool and everything. The the free games I was I looked up what free games they have currently. I added it up. I was like, that's fifty bucks right there. And then." You you add in the cloud support. You know you now have the Sega Genesis Classics on there too, for free. I mean, it's it's so hard not to go jump on that, especially after just you know I, I already mentioned this. After losing a PlayStation and losing all my save games, that would have been huge for me to be able to. I mean, they're already syncing up your trophies. Why not be able to sync up your save games with it? Well, here's. <laughs> Here's my issue with that. Um, I live out in the country, and I'm in the process of buying a house out in the country. Uh-huh. And there's already been plenty of times where not only could I not get on Xbox Live very reliably to be able to play online, but there's been times where I could not access my <clears throat> my Xbox Live arcade games because I... Re- I have a 360 LAN. We we have um, you know big gaming parties over here. Right. So I have I don't have a dead I have a, I don't have a single system that I always play all of my download games on. Mm-hmm. And so those digital rights are spread between you know like three or four different machines. And so there are times where I want to play um, I want to play one of these games and I can't do it because I can't it won't, you know it's throwing me off offline. And so I don't have access to that downloaded game that I, I want to play because it, even though it's stored on the hard drive, it says can't connect to Xbox Live. Right. You know, you don't have the right to play this game. And I'm like, really? So if my save game for all of my saved games are online and I need that to access it, you know, that could be a, a real issue with my ability to play the games that I bought. You know, the idea that I I buy a sixty dollar game new and say part of their digital rights media, they make it to where you have to save your game online. You know, I could buy a game, have the physical copy here, and still be caught where I can't play it because I cannot access online. Or say I take it on a vacation with me. Mm-hmm. You know, some random place that doesn't so there's right now it's an option. And so that's that's not as big of a deal. What I'm concerned about is that they're going to incorporate this as they already have in PC in a way that it's going to be part of the, the digital rights media um, protection so that you have to get online to be able to play the disc you actually physically have. And by extension, if they shut those servers down in the future, you can have a disc that's, <laughs> you know, it's like my copy of uh, Fantasy Star Online for my Xbox over there, you know. It's not exactly doing me a lot of good at this point. Nice little paperweight. The thing about the PlayStation Plus one is not, it's not necessarily a, that's where all your save games are going to be. It's, it's merely a backup service. So it's not necessarily where you have to be, from what I'm seeing at least, where you have to be necessarily connected online to always have your save games. You'll always have them locally, but it's a way to back up your save games online. See, my con- – well, yeah. and I, I Which mean, right they, now can still, it's they can still move that way. I could see that, yeah, where they yeah. have a, a sync. And, yeah, it could set a precedent that way, but 
Yeah, right now it's certainly useful, and and especially if they keep it to where you kind of have like this this identity, this like PlayStation Network ID, and you can pull it up on any PS3. You can go anywhere online, and you know you could go to somebody else's PS3 and not have any issue pulling your stuff up, and even your save game, not even having a memory card or anything, you just pull it up from online. You know that definitely has a lot of uh, usability potential. I'm just concerned in the future that, you know, again, going towards the uh, gaming as a service, that it's, you know, say like you, that that's one of my issues with, say, like on li- the console on live, you know, because it would not be very useful for us where we live right now because I mean, it's not very often that our internet goes out, but it's often enough to where I'm like, eh, as a paid service, I, you know, I'd rather have the, the disc in front of me to be sure. able to play it whenever I want. And we have Dead Man asking about uh, our favorite games of all time, the classic, we're on a desert island and need something to play and an outlet to plug it in. Um, so he was just wanting to know, you know, just the, the classics that we would have to have there. And, uh, well, everybody's got their list. What do you got there, Adam? Um, I went with some mostly classics for either, you know, growing up. I mean, there's... There's so many games, but these ones always kind of stick out in my mind. Uh, Earthbound, of course, as I've mentioned several times. Um, I did have to throw in Super Metroid. Nice. And Because um, I can't find graph paper in the sand. That's right. High tide washes away your map showing <laughs> you where the ice beam is. Crawled out maps. <laughs> and uh, It started looking like it was help, but now it looks like this weird, big, huge <laughs> map of something. I don't know what that is. Yeah, cancel the cancel the rescue. He doesn't need it. <laughs> and um, kind of the third one I thought my head was uh, linked to the past. That's a good call. <clears throat> Always a good call. I, I really don't think you can go wrong with that. I mean, I could I could say I could throw in Final Fantasy VI because you're going to spend so many hours on that game anyway to do all the different things in it. Um, I mean, again, as we mentioned already, the soundtrack is just great. Um, but to, you know, the, I get, you might not necessarily hear that on the coconut television, but, um, the, just the different storylines that you go across, and it's such a huge game. I mean, that would definitely take some, take your mind off the, uh, desert for just a little while. <laughs> Yeah, some of my classics uh, are interesting choices. <laughs> Necromancer for the old Commodore 64 uh, has it'll always be one of my all-time greats. It was one of the first arcadey games that I really got a feel for, and and I don't want to say mastered, but felt like I could I could hold my own on. It was just uh, unfortunately one of those gems that have gotten passed over and you don't hear a lot about, but uh, it's just one of my all-time favorites, and I could just it's one I could just sit down and play anytime. Same with Tetris DX. Still think that uh, that was the best variant of Tetris. Uh, still my favorite. Uh, if I had, you know, and again, we're kind of goofing off with stretching it out here, but if I had a whole LAN party on said Desert Island, probably wouldn't be worried about being rescued, but um, <laughs> Halo Wars has just been my, my favorite to-go-to multiplayer game and i'll have to write a post to defend why i think halo wars is you know holds that esteem in my collection we still play halo wars almost every week it's become our new starcraft even with starcraft 2 sitting here we we keep on going back to halo wars it's just we've had so much fun with that um so yeah i've got some a little bit more eclectic uh ideas in my collection what about you well, I am, um, like it or not, for better or worse, I am still, after all this time, a Sega Dreamcast fan. And as you guys are having this conversation, I'm thinking through my favorites. And I was trying to shake up and come up with some variety of any type of non-Dreamcast games, and I was not coming up with anything. <laughs> my uh, my all-time favorite has got to be the fighting game Soul Calibur. Um, I could pretty much kick anybody's tail on it. Um, <laughs> um, has more than one attack. Just so you know, that's not me. Dear. You're mixing up me and your friend again. <laughs> um, I also really like Echo the Dolphin. There's something about letting that dolphin chase around, and you just watch it, and it's so peaceful and relaxing and freaking hard. 
And I'm stuck on this again. Can you help me? Sure. I think that you have fond memories of Echo because that was like right after we got married and we're like, Han, I'm stuck on this. Yay, he's playing a game with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And then the other, the uh, third that kind of rounds that out is Skies of Arcadia. I actually have very fond memories of going through with some of my college roommates and um, really taking out some of the other quests, side quests and things of that nature, really developing and fleshing out their characters. So it was so much fun. One one part of the post that Deadman brings out is what games stand out in your childhood? Don't have to be the best graphics, best sound or anything, just what games stand out and for what reasons? I'm thinking he was probably asking on a positive spin. But I've got one that stands out on a really negative spin. On uh, the uh, NES Little Mermaid. My sister got that as a Christmas present one year. And she played it incessantly. And I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'm ever going to want to see that game ever again. <laughs> There's only so many times you can hear a fin splash against the water and the little mini NES sound before you go crazy. Yeah, I kind of have to like throw a little cover of our NES collection near the L's there for it. <laughs> I don't know about. I don't know this to kind of go along with those lines. Um, one game that I had growing up that just uh, at random times the music, the only song in the game, pretty much, uh, pops into my head randomly is Bubble Bobble. And we can't hear it, Adam. Get out of my head! Because <laughs> that the music popped into my head while she was even talking about the Little Mermaid. It wasn't uh, Crazy Taxi, was it? <laughs> crazy Taxi. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Dude, no, I love Crazy Taxi. Man, that is such a fun game. It is. It's it is the perfect pick-up-and-play game. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I took that on one of my um, training sites when I was in some of my training and um, was out of town, had other people, other professionals that I was residing with and took my Dreamcast and I took Crazy Taxi and I literally had a group of about six or seven professionals playing Crazy Taxi, yelling at the screen, running each other over, stopping for KFC fried chicken. It was really funny. This was ninja school, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> Super <laughs> secret ninja school. He, uh, <laughs> Deadman mentioned uh, that, you know, for the first game that you played that made you think this was going to change your life, and, and uh, it, it has become cliche, especially since it's the most uh, remade and reported game <laughs> ever, but Final Fantasy IV... Uh, left such a mark on me when I went through it because it was by far the largest scale epic storyline. I mean, it, it was like a one of like one of the ancient epic poems uh, for its time. For a little kid like me going through that, it left such an impression. I was so uh, caught up into the spectacle of the whole thing, and it's probably a good thing that the easy version was released over here um, <laughs> at the time, you know, as opposed to the harder Japanese version because. I remember spending so much time in in that, that game and just grinding and grinding and building up my characters because you know I was still trying to learn how to play role playing games and uh, it just it was the first video game that showed me that just the the depth that they could go to uh, before then I just played more arcadey type games on my Commodore sixty four and uh, you know just a decent collection of Nintendo games but this was a huge thing and that really left it it always has left an impression on me and made me realize that uh this is video gaming is such a, an excellent tool for storytelling when used correctly uh or at least used with that intention uh you know it doesn't mean that every game has you know, tetris worlds did not need a storyline but <laughs> you know not not every gaming needs that but it, right. it, it can be a vehicle uh, and, and because of its interactive nature, it can be something you can, you don't get anywhere else. You know, when when I finished Shadow of the Colossus, uh, I felt more emotion uh, tied to that experience than I ever have watching any movie. And uh, you know, I used to be a pretty decent movie buff, so that says a lot. And that it all started with Final Fantasy IV. I think the kind of earliest one that really kind of 
that really cemented my love for gaming. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd always enjoyed playing games. It was mostly side-scrollers and stuff, but the one that really... Probably my earliest one that had a huge impact on me was Mega Man 2. Nice. And I had... Uh, I never had it, but my uh, a real good friend of mine had it, and we spent hours at his house one time trying to, you know, going back and forth trying to figure out which weapons are going to be best and trying to beat the game. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, that's still one of my favorite gaming soundtracks ever, too. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it's... There's so much good music out of it and very level design. It you know, it wasn't as simple as the you know, it didn't have the score like the original Mega Man where it's kind of arcadey like you know, like Mega Man one Bionic Commander where you had a score still. You actually had a you know, a set of you know, you could beat the levels in any order, but obviously there's the you know, preferred way and the best way. It's just a matter of finding which boss handled which one better. And then mm-hmm. you still had to beat Wily. Mm-hmm. And sometimes had to kind of re, like, uh, you know, redo your strategy by oh, the time yeah. you got there. You might not have had enough weapon energy with certain bosses, or yeah, just the way it mixed it up. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason why there's five hundred thousand million Mega Man games out there. <laughs> but two and three, I think, are still commonly commented as, as people's favorites, and uh, I have very fond memories of. Uh, I have. Fond memories of three in the same way that you and many others have of two, because uh, three was uh, one one of my gaming buddies as a youth that had a lot of money. <laughs> that was the game we bonded over, and so after that, I got to play all the new stuff that came out vicariously. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it I can see that as definitely being one of those that that you go back to. <clears throat> it's some some other notable ones that, that stood out in my childhood um, was F-Zero. It was the first game that I ever uh, well it was the first racing game I ever tried to beat my own score at. Uh, like my own times. I mean, I, before then I could care less. You know, I just was glad I got in first in advance. That was the, the first game I tried to master. I tried to sit down and, and learn all of the best routes, how to, how to just ace everything in that game and <laughs> the tracks that had like the the kind of artificial wind element that would blow you around the track mm-hmm. just annoyed the heck out of me because you couldn't you know it was almost slightly randomized so you, you couldn't exactly memorize a perfect pattern through it um, but I just that was the first one that I uh, I took that approach to and then uh, another one uh, that's a pretty obscure uh, Crossroads for the Commodore 64 uh, was the game that taught me that you could have a game that ran at 900 miles an hour and gave you just enough control to hang on and know what you were doing, and you could just, you could really master a game that can move at that kind of speed. And, and nowadays, it looks, you know, pretty pretty simple and tame compared to something like Rekka, but uh, it was the first game that when I, when I played it initially, I was like, I can't ever keep up with this. This is just too <laughs> manic. But, uh, you know, you play it and you play it, and you, just enough of that instinct turns on to uh, to reflectively react, and you train yourself, and uh, it just it was the game that turned me on to that style of addictive play, where you know you, it's so fast, but you just barely have control. So Dead Man's asking, um, what is the first game that that I played that makes me think this is going to change my life? Um, this is actually not a retro answer that maybe he was possibly shooting for, but it's something as recent as Mario Kart Wii, because this is the game that my four-year-old can seriously beat me at. Um, <laughs> and as a parent, it makes me step back and think, he's, he's talented, he's invested in video games, he has good hand-eye coordination, and I've got to be very careful what I expose these young, young little guys to. So um, that's changed my life, but from a very different perspective. It's okay. I put away Splatterhouse. You can't find it anymore. <laughs> what about Mad World? I got that one hidden. Uh, yeah, that's right next to Mario Kart. I really should do something about that. <laughs> he can be he's four years old, and he can outrace me on the motion control, using the motion control. Yeah. I still have to use the, the you know, the... Uh, GameCube or the classic <laughs> controller, and I, I just—it's embarrassing. 
little guy has just memorized. It's not just that he's memorized the track. He uh, every time he, he tries out a new track, he'll just ram into the walls everywhere and try to find shortcuts, try to find secrets, try to find the quickest way to the end. And once he he picks up on a few, he'll just do them over and over and over and over. And it's it's amazing and scary to watch. I think the last part of his question, I, you you kind of already brought it up. Um, your best friend that had. He said he asked, uh, "Did your best friend have an Intellivision who got you hooked on B17 Bomber like I did?" <laughs> <laughs> now this this uh, this buddy of mine in our youth, he um, he was one of those guys that you know his parents bought him everything, and so he just uh, he was always looking for people to share that with, which was cool. So we got together a lot and did a lot of game trading back and forth, you know, in those early years. And uh, my first bonding game like that was Mega Man Three. Uh, yeah, he got me hooked on Super Nintendo. He uh, Got me hooked on Genesis. Not that I didn't want to play him in the first place, but he was the place like he was the the method by which I could actually play these games. So I have kind of an odd story for that one. Um, my uh, yeah, my best friend growing up, he uh, seemed to always have the current system or one of each, whether it was at you know one of his mom's, one of his dad's, however that worked out. Where he had the Super Nintendo, he had the Genesis, the Sega CD, all that kind of stuff. Um, he was, you know, he had my first, showed me the first, my first PlayStation game, Nintendo 64, Dreamcast, PS2, and, um, he, you know, he showed me some of the, um, Super Nintendo titles mostly that are now some of my favorites. Super Metroid and Earthbound and Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger even. Um, you know, he had all those, all those games. And um, he is now my brother-in-law. And um, <laughs> once he finally got out of classic gaming, that's where I came up with my copies of Mario RPG uh, and Earthbound. Have you just... convinced him he didn't need these anymore? No, no, no. It wasn't even that at all. He, he was actually getting divorced. and. Uh, so he was trying to get – I think he was trying to get rid of that before uh, that went through. But um, You know, that, that adds – I don't mean to interject in your story, um, but this, the happy nostalgia we have for a lot of these games in the same way that uh, some people can't listen to some, some CDs mm-hmm. because of a bad experience. You know, games are the same way. You know, oh, you, yes. there's, there's games or entire systems that uh, – that people couldn't touch uh, nowadays because of something that happened. You know, if, if something happened to Amy, I, I don't know if I could even touch our Dreamcast stuff. I might just have to pack it up and find a, a home for it because, yeah, I mean, it's just got such strong emotional ties to it. But, yeah, he, um, he, you know, he gave me a bunch of that stuff, and, but, yeah, he was always the one that hooked me up with all that kind of stuff, whether it was just trying out a game or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Sorry to kill the vibe for what we had going there. <laughs> No, it's but you know that's it's in a way it's kind of that dark side uh, like we've, we've you know been bragging about the beauty of of games and and uh, its relationship with art and these wonderful media experiences but like anything that that gives you those strong emotions you know if they're tied into that negativity it's it, it goes both ways. Well, hopefully on a more chipper note, have any game shoutouts that you've been playing lately? Um, I haven't really had a chance to. Uh, recently, I've got well, I got some more Marvel vs. Capcom time in, but um, I did get a chance to try out uh, Killzone. And I've been staring at the collector's edition helmet. I haven't opened the game. <laughs> I, I'm not, in general, I'm not a big first-person shooter fan. Um, I thought it had some unique uh, gameplay elements right off, you know, in the in the demo where you had the. Uh, the jetpack flying around, and you start off in the um, some sort of a flying machine um, where you're shooting down targets and aiming, that, you know, that kind of stuff. Where you, you know, you have a and I haven't played any of the other series either, so I, I didn't really know. But <clears throat> being such a huge game, I figured I may as well try it out. Um, it was fun to play, but I'm not. <clears throat> big on shooter game or first person shooter games um at least uh you know modern ones on consoles yeah i have killzone 3 and 2 and 1 and 
I have a, a good buddy of mine I play with online that is really excited about me jumping online with them on that one, and, and I haven't gotten a chance to yet, but I hear that the multiplayer is, is really well done, and uh, the campaign has a lot of uh, gorgeous graphics and nice set pieces and, and not much of a story to speak of. But then again, I like the story through the Halo games, and a lot of people <laughs> say those don't have anything to speak of, so I <laughs> yeah, might get into it. Uh, me and a buddy went through Chippendale's Rescue Rangers 2 this last week. Uh, one of the more obscure Nintendo games that probably more people would have played had it been released earlier, um, you know, than not right at the end of the system's life. And the original Rescue Rangers is definitely, it's not necessarily in many people's top ten Nintendo games, but it's its routinely ranked pretty high, especially as a co-op game. Uh, it, it's a somewhat simple, easy, fun game to get through, um, and the sequel is, you know, based off the same engine, basically plays identical, and we enjoyed it, but it missed some of the charm of the first Rescue Rangers. Uh, I don't think it was just that it was more of the same. It, it was some of the strange edits, like it didn't have the overworld map of the first Rescue Rangers, and uh, it had a little bit more dynamicism to the uh, to the, the actual level design and some of the bosses, but it just seemed to be kind of uh, missing a little bit of the heart of the first one for some reason. It was still enjoyable, but... Uh, Spoiler alert. Fat Cat Escapes. What the heck? <laughs> so, disappointing ending. I guess I have a little bit of a game shout-out, too. A few weeks back, um, me and a few of the friends were uh, playing the new release of the Scott Pilgrim vs. the World game, and uh, we were having fun ducking in and out of the buildings and hiding from the bad guys and beating up the bad guys. Um, went through the... Uh, collection of the six graphic novels as well as seeing the uh, recent live action release and uh, it's neat how all the three of them tie together I have to reference this on my end because my beloved had no idea what Scott Pilgrim was and wasn't the biggest fan of Michael Sarah. so preview comes on and she's just kind of staring at it and you know I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like yes but this is awesome yes and she's like oh that looks dumb I'm like, ah! and so I'm like you you have to you have to read these you know I just like I, di- I didn't even give her a chance to say no I like I, I like shoved them right in front of her I was like read these I, I had to do the same thing with uh, <laughs> back when um, Watchmen came out uh, a little oh, while ago oh, yeah. I um, saw a preview but that one she was actually kind of like oh that looks interesting I'm like oh read this and uh, so yeah now we're, we're you know both big scott pilgrim fans but yeah i love that game it's it, if you like river city ransom you gotta give this one a go well if you're bringing up um watchmen then i have to quote scott uh then i have to uh correct that sorry then i have to quote stephen colbert so uh dr manhattan where's your glowing blue medical degree <laughs> <laughs> that was the one part of the movie I could have done without. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up with, in honor of our special guest here, the top five best reasons to have a gamer wife. Number five, you can explain that the six foot Kratos statue was for her. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Number four. Great excuse to end up with two flat screen TVs in the living room. Number three, you can rope her into your podcast and tell her it's for the good of the site. Likely story. (laughs) She hands it to me because I don't think she's going to want to do the last two. (laughs) Number two, two words, Cortana cosplay. And the number one best reason to have a gamer wife, you now have an official excuse to game in your underwear. Quick, get that mental image out of your head now. Ouch. Oh, right before we wrap things up, uh, we have our winner for our first caption contest. If you didn't see it, Slacker's bathtub full of NES and Game Gear and various other game sleeves in the bathtub with a bunch of soap being stirred around like a giant video game do. We had some great entries. Uh, Noise Redux put in, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. And NES rules threw threw in. Forget the rubber ducky. This is what a true gamer brings to bath time. Um, but 
it was pretty unanimous that Crabmaster 2000 had the winning entry, and he said, and that's when the dust sleeve woke up and realized that his kidneys were missing. Kudos to you, Mr. Crabmaster. So I'll be in contact with you to uh, get your ringtone request, and I think we're going to try and get another one uh, lined up for this next episode, so uh, check out the front page of RF Generation to see that picture. If you have any comments, questions, queries, topic suggestions, or interview desires, um, be sure to post them at rfgeneration.com. You can also use the site to track your game collection. You can blog about your games, visit our forums. You can also email the show at podcast at rfgeneration.com or give us a phone call at area code 318-RFG-TIP-5. That's area code 318-734-8475. That is not Amy's phone number. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) You can also check us out in, in our IRC chat room. We're in channel RF Generation on QuakeNet. We uh, want to say thank you and God bless and have a wonderful evening or morning or afternoon, wherever you are, whenever you are. Um, just remember to keep it on Channel 3.